No, it's time to move. It took y'all a week to settle back into the same place. If we are to expect revival from God, if we are to expect God to move, and he hasn't been moving in our lives, we've got to change something. Let's change our perspective this morning. Move next to somebody you don't normally sit to. Let's get as far forward as possible. Come on.
Oh, 
You bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. It's a day that you have made, and we rejoice and be glad in it. You are so good, Father. You grace us with your mercies every single morning. And today we come to worship you, Lord. And we pray that our worship is sincere and acceptable to you, Lord. And we come to a point in the service where we give back a little of so much that you've given us. And we just pray that our offering is pleasing and acceptable to you, Lord. Be with us and be with David as he brings the word, Lord. May your voice speak through him and hearts be receptive to the message. And may they be convicted to be better as children of yours. We ask these things, Jesus, in your most precious and holy of all names. Amen.
If you've had victory in your life, let it be known. Amen? Come on, victory. Has Jesus given you victory in your life, or have you just been a sad sack the whole time? Seriously, come on. Um, for the two of you that took me seriously two weeks ago, BJ did not say he didn't think I was ready. BJ is willing to help a brother, let him preach anytime he wants to. It was a joke. But Curtis did say he would double my pay today, so. And now that I think about it, I didn't think that one through. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I began to study. Y'all go ahead and sit down for a minute. I began to study, and I went to Revelation. Oh, I'm so excited. God, I love Revelation. It's a great book. It's impactful. It's powerful. God, there is so much there. And I'm studying. I'm through chapter 1. There are lampstands. There's Jesus. There's flames. There's stars. There's the holiness of God. There's an 80-year-old man who's in a salt mine who has been caught up in the Spirit of God. There is so much there. And I get to chapter 2. God, we are talking to Ephesus. Woo! God, there is so much here. And then I get to one verse. I love you, but I have a little something against you. And we know if you're a Revelation scholar that the something God had against him, he said, you have left your first love. And I could not get past that. I tried, and I tried, and I tried. I could just not get past having left my first love. Because any man that stands in this sacred four, like I've said before, this deals with him long before it ever gets to you. I could not get past that. The sacred, just, just God, what, what? And God's like, let's go back to something more basic. But God, it's revelations. Look at it. It's got dragons. It's got golden gates. It's got massive cities. God, what's not to like about Revelation? Yeah, yeah. And it's not like God's like, no. God will be to you what he needs for you to hear. He will be to you what you need in order to understand him. So God with me is sarcastic. And I love that about him. God talks to me through sarcasm. I remember being right out of high school, I, was, I had a project going, I was trying to get some bricks laid, and much like it has been here lately, it rained, it rained, it rained, and I, I had these pillars to get laid up, and God, please let me have some sunshine tonight so I can get these bricks laid. That afternoon, the clouds part, there's bright sunshine. I get to this job, I start laying bricks. The bottom falls out, but there's still sunshine. So God is sarcastic to me, and I love that about him. But I don't get the, no, David. I don't get the, like, Russian D voice of God. I get the little cartoon dog voice of God. Uh -uh. What do you mean, God? This revelation is awesome. Uh -uh. What? Okay, you want more basic? In the beginning, well, not quite that far. Let's, let's bring it up a little bit. We're going to recite God's word today. When you figure out where I am, you jump in. But if you would, let's please rise for the recitation of God's word.
Now, when you figure out where I am, you jump in. And we're going to do it King Jimmy style because I like King Jimmy. I'm not stuck to it, but I like King Jimmy. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for every heart that it's inscripted upon. Father, I thank you for every heart that has memorized this, that knows this. God, I thank you for the scars on our flesh that have experienced this. I thank you for the wounds in our spirit that have experienced your goodness, your mercy. Father, your word is powerful. Father, your word is great. Lord, your name is great and greatly to be praised. Father, we ask that you open our hearts today. Father, take our hearts of stone, replace them with hearts of flesh. Father, open us to you. Father, perform heart surgery today. Be great in this place. Father, set this old clay pot aside. Father, you preach. Father, you teach. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. We ask all this in the pure, life-changing, and transforming name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. God, really? Five-year-olds know this. It, it's a passage. I mean, think about it. It's on grandma's wall. She needle-stitched this when she was four. I've seen guys that have this tattooed down their arm or on their leg where they can see it. God, it's a tattoo. God, it's needlepoint. God, it's a poster. God, kids, kids say this. Okay, God. And I learned a long time ago when I began preaching that when God does this, grab his coattails, you go get laughed at some, but hang on for the ride because there's something wild coming. So we are going to be in Psalm 23. And the important thing to remember about the Psalms, they are not in chronological order. Psalm 1 is not the first one David ever wrote. Psalm 101 is not towards the end. Psalm 119 is not the middle psalm that David wrote. It just happens to be the longest. They were numbered as the scrolls were pulled out and used in churches. Okay, well, this is the first psalm we've received, so we're going to call it number one. Well, this is the next one we found. It'll be number two, so on, so on. Psalm 23, there's a very important aspect to think about it. David, by most theologians, is considered to be an older man at this point. He's not a young man. He's not a 15-year-old out playing the flute, watching sheep. He's not a 14-year-old slinging rocks at the pond while he's having to watch daddy sheep because my brothers get to go to war and watching these stupid sheep. 
David's an older man. So Psalm 23 is written through the spirit of a shepherd boy. With the heart of a warrior that has shown mercy, with the brow of a king that has endured and has fallen and has been restored. Man, if that won't preach. He's not a young man at this point. He's an older man. He's had scars. He's had trials. He's had tribulations. And so he writes this psalm in reflection. It's not anticipation, but it's a reflection. He's looking back over his life. He's looking at battles he's won, he's lost. He's looking at things he's done wrong. A man he's murdered. A woman he adulterated with. A tyrant king whose life he spared twice. He's looking back on lions and bears that attacked his flock. And with a few pebbles he's slain. And he looks back to a young man in a valley facing a giant. The 23rd Psalm is not just Grandma's Psalm. I think back to all the times that I've preached this and I've read this at graveside at funerals. I don't know too many families that have taken comfort when that was read. I'm sure one or two. I think of all the funerals that I've been at and we've recited this at the graveside. And we recite it and we just go through it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, yada, 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 on down the road. And we fly through it. How many times have we stopped to break it down, to take it apart, to really look at it, to really understand what God's saying to us. What David, a man of experience, is saying to us about his God. We start in the very first verse, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord. In King Jimmy, it's capital L, capital little O, capital little R, capital little D. We know that to be the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh. That's God's name. When Moses, back in Exodus, turns and sees the bush and says, Hey, let me turn and go see this site. And God says, Go tell my people. Well, but, 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 God, who am I going to say sent me? You tell them, I am that I am. I am is my shepherd. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the ever beginning to everlasting, the one that is, was, and always will be. The man, the one that controls the universe and holds it in his hand, that's my shepherd. We have David's confession of faith. You hear me? We have David's confession of faith. The Lord is my shepherd. Isabella, what's your confession of faith? Carrie Beard, what's your confession of faith? Hunter Stanton, what's your confession of faith? Miss Pat Stroud, what's your confession of faith? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... There's a very specific 
relationship implied here, just as you people have just implied a very specific relationship. It's not, hey, you know, we're close, or we hang, or we go out to dinner from time to time. There is a specific relationship that is mentioned. If we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, there are certain expectations from both him and from us. Hear me, church. Certain expectations of God. If God is the shepherd, if Yahweh, the great I am, is the shepherd, we expect care. Do we not? The shepherd is expected to care for his flock. If he's not caring for his flock, he has fallen down on the job and will probably be run out of town as a shepherd. So we expect care. Now, the care can be broken down into a couple of things. But with the shepherd's care, what's expected of the flock? Ma'am? Obedience. That's part of it. To follow. That's part of it. A total reliance on the shepherd to be obedient, to follow, to rely on him for protection, to rely on him for sustenance, to rely on him to develop us. There is that expectation. Now we break care down into protection. God's protection. The shepherd protects. What does the shepherd protect against? The enemy, let, let's, let's, let's bring it down to earth. What does a shepherd protect against? Coyotes, wolves, other wild animals that seek to do what? They, they want to come in and they want to have lamb chops. That's what they're wanting. Their primary goal is to eat from the flock, to consume, to destroy flesh that is within the, within the flock. Now, if the sheep see this danger, what do they do? They run. But more often than not, the animal comes when? They come in the night. They come under a cover of darkness. And does the flock always know they're there? No. But who's in charge of knowing that? The shepherd. So there's an expectation that God is looking out for us even when we can't perceive the danger. You as a flock a member of the flock, you as his child, having entered into that Jesus is my Lord and Savior relationship, you have an expectation of total reliance, and in God's protection, we need to accept that protection. But God, you just don't understand. I can fix him. I can fix her. No, baby, you can't. That's God's job. But God, I can go do this. No. Accept my protection. God, this door won't open because there's a wolf on the other side. Accepting God's protection is just as important as God protecting. A very specific relationship. We break it down to guidance. Sheep go and they graze on the hillside, but when it's time to move on, who's in charge of that? Shepherd. Shepherd's in charge of that. It's time to move on. Let's go. Let's move. We're going from this pasture to that pasture. Or, you know what? The water here is not as sweet as it is over here. Let's go over here. Guidance of the shepherd to take the flock where it needs to go. To take you where you need to go. There's that acceptance. God, you lead. I follow. 
sustenance. The shepherd's responsible for making sure they have green pastures to feast on, right? Yeah. The shepherd's also responsible for making sure that they don't overgraze. If we overgraze, the field becomes barren and it doesn't produce grass anymore. So sometimes in our lives, there are great things that God takes us away from. If we are to accept this reliance upon him as shepherd for that guidance to move us to where we need to be. You know what? You're great here, but let's go here. And it hurts sometimes. It's just, God, it's so great. Did you not see what was there? It was awesome. Okay, let's go. Let's go somewhere else. Let, let, let's go there. I've got a better place for us right now. There's more grass. There's better water. Something else we don't think about in the shepherd and sheep relationship. Why raise sheep? Hmm? Wool. There is an expectation of us that we produce that we be useful, that we be productive in God's kingdom. That's part of this specific relationship. There is that expectation that as sheep, we produce wool, just as there is an expectation that the shepherd shears the sheep. There is an expectation that we produce fruit, just as the vine keeper comes and clips the bad stuff away and then harvests the fruit for the use in the kingdom. There is an expectation in that part of this very specific relationship. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's in control. I'm not. It's, a very, it's, it's cut and dry. It's very specific. We have David's confession of faith. Yahweh's my shepherd. He's got it under control. I'm a goofus. I'm going to mess it up. I accept that. Let him take it and just let me go. Now, the funny thing about Psalm 23 is, unlike most of the other Psalms, we have the summarization up front. And then we have supporting details. It's not the introduction. This is the sum total. It's, it's, it's an algebra equation. We're given 25, and now we need to figure out what x times 3y is. We know the answer. Now we've got to deconstruct it. It's written that way, I believe, so that we will deconstruct it, so that we go through it with a fine-tooth comb to see why David is so intently confident in this relationship, why he is hanging on to God so in a very primary text. Sometimes we read it, but we don't comprehend Sometimes we listen to it, but we don't hear. That's why throughout Revelation, Jesus says, if a man has an ear to hear, let him hear, understand. Seek God's face in this. Try to find out what all's in it. I shall not want. That is a testimony to all of God's greatness and all of his provision through the years. We've got this one verse that stands as a mirror to these other five. 
Just as we have two verses in John that stand as a mirror to four books of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But now let's finish it. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Four books of the Bible. That's all they're saying. Jesus loves you. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died. If you will just believe in him, you're saved. If you will trust in him as Lord and Savior, you're saved. He has overcome the world. There is no condemnation. There is love. There is mercy. There is guidance. Two verses sum up four books. David's giving us an example of that. One verse sums up the other five. And we're going to start with sustenance. You've made me to lie down in green pastures. Are green pastures good? Yeah, for sheep, they're awesome. There's grass. Man, we're going to get just round mud fat. There's grass. There's plenteous. But you've got to move from that pasture sometimes. God takes us from those green pastures sometimes. And we will go through dry pastures. We will go through sparse pastures. We will go through rocky pastures only to come and find a greener pasture. And while we're in this pasture, we do look around. And we look across the stream and we look across the fence. And sometimes we do see what we perceive to be a greener pasture only to get there and find out what? It's on a septic tank. It's greener, all right, because it's well fertilized. Seriously. I mean, the, think of the times in your life something else has looked just so much better than where you are right now, and you jump that fence, you cross that creek, you get to that pasture, only to find out that it's just a bunch of junk. It looked great from where you were. It looked wonderful from where you were, but then you got there, and you realized, this stinks. Oh, we're on top of the cesspool. No wonder the grass is so green here. It's disgusting. But think about the times we've done that in our life. Think about the times that you have done that. I know I think about the times I have done that. God, if you would just get me to there, that, that would be perfect. God, if, if you would just. God, if you would just. God, if I could just. If I could just. No. Uh-uh. Pop the hand out. Green grass is indeed indicative of God's sustenance. And David's telling us that. I have had abundance in my life. I have always had, just like he said in the previous verse, I shall not want. Andy and I married November 23rd, 2002. We moved out to California December 27th, 2002. I had money in my pocket. I had a U-Haul, and by the time we got to California, I had three cents in my pocket. God gave me everything I needed. This is with a flat tire in the middle of the Nevada desert. This is with all the food we had to purchase, all the gasoline we had to purchase for this monstrous U-Haul. And then I take the U-Haul back, I get a $100 deposit back. Woo! God, we're having biscuits this morning. I saw Hardy's on the way. 
there's grocery money too. I shall not want. I shall not lack, as the English standard says. I shall not be in a state of needing something and not have it, as the Amplified says. If we're entering into this covenant relationship, there's expectations of God, there are expectations of us. God's going to take me to that green pasture. He's going to take the church to that green pasture. He's going to take his bride to that green pasture. It doesn't mean that we walk through the green pasture the whole way. It means that there is a destination and we are headed there. I know that I am made for green pastures because, like he says back in Genesis, I am made in his image. You are made in his image. When the king is in the desert, does the king lack? No. Does the king thirst? No. Does the king hunger in the desert? No. Why? Because he is attended to. There is water that is carried for the king. There is food that is carried for the king. There is shade that is carried for the king. And I, as a child of the king, should not expect any less. My God, my king, my savior, my shepherd is going to make sure that I don't lack in the desert. There's going to be food. There's going to be water. God's going to take care of everything. Does that mean we just sit back and go, oh, well, God's going to take care of me? No. We look for God's hand when God moves. We, we look for the opportunities that God provides and realize that when they come that they are of God or they are not of God. So I know that I am designed for green pastures because my God is designed for abundance and sustenance. And if I'm made in his image, then I'm designed for abundance and sustenance. Now, this is not word of faith. This is, God, this is God's teddy bear. This is David having experienced a life, a life, I dare say, fully lived, looking back and saying, you know what? I thought I was so poor at that point. I thought I was so destitute. But man, look what God has done. I thought that we were just so broke. But look at all that God provided. I thought we would not have another meal, but look at what God has done. There is sustenance, and I'm designed in the image of the king to be like the king. He leads me beside still waters. Get up early before the crack of dawn. Get your waiters on. Get your duck call. Get your shotgun. Get out there in the marsh, get all squatted down, and you look across the lake, and it's just so flat. It's just so still, the quiet of the morning, the, the yellows and oranges starting to peak above the tree line in the background or the mountains in the background. There's a nice fog hovering above the water. Here come a couple of ducks, and it seems like the ripples that they make go on forever. And then a little bit later, that, that lake just returns back, just as smooth, just as still. That quiet moment, he leads me to still waters. He leads me to this moment of peace. He has taken me to that moment to where he and I can commune. 
where there's no distraction, where there's nothing pulling me away, there's this moment of stillness. Be still and know that I am God. Understand that. He leads me beside still waters. My senior saints, my fountain of youth group members, has it always been smooth sailing? No. Kids that are in here know, they've been alive long enough to know that it's not always smooth sailing. That there are waves, there are tempests, there are rapids, and there are currents. Jesus, we're drowning, the storm is raging, don't you care if we live or die? Peace. What manner of shepherd is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Peace. Be still. He's going to lead us to those waters. He's leading us to that constant refreshing. He's leading us so that we will never thirst again. He restores my soul. Restore is an interesting word. Um, it means to put back. It means to build up, rebuild, or build back up what was torn down. Uh, it means a continuance of growth. It means... To revive. He said the R word. It means to revive. The Lord restores my soul. When I was wayward and I was out of God's line of walking, he called me unto himself and he has restored me. He put a robe on my back and a ring on my finger. My son that was dead is returned to me and he is alive. I have been restored. I have been revived. I was dead to him and I was brought back. Over the last few months, I've heard a lot of folks talk about, we want revival. We need revival. Revival is what we need. We, we just got to have revival. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Yes. We need revival. But there's something that comes with revival. It's a very specific relationship. It comes with an admittance on our part that something has died. Hear me, church? Something has died. We say we want revival in our spirit. We want revival. We want God to move. Well, are you standing in God's way? Are we getting in the way of God when God goes to move? Uh, are our hearts penitent? Are they contrite? Are we seeking God's revival? Are we like, well, God, I just like my dead flesh, and I just want to hang on to it, so there, you can revive around me. No, seriously. I think of some of these old sourpuss Christians I've known in my lifetime that 
doesn't matter how much the spirit moves, I'm just going to sit back here and I'm just going to be grouchy and I'm going to be grumpy. And if God doesn't like it, well, he, he just knows who I am. That's the way he made me. No, babe, that's not the way God made you. I hate to tell you. You were made in his image. What you got going on is a hot mess. But I want revival. Well, then get off your honey and let God revive. Let him take the dead flesh of your life and go to the tomb and say, flesh, come forth. Let him revive. You know, we to spark revival in churches, we throw a lot of stuff at the inner man, the inner woman. We throw programs. We throw seminars. We throw classes. We throw speakers, we throw all kinds of stuff, etc., etc., etc. A lot of times we throw everything but God. God is the one who brings revival, not man. What you can do to spark revival, what you can do to get God to revive is say, God, there's a part of me that has died to you. Sin has come in. It has killed it. A wolf has snuck into the flock and killed part of me by night. God, bring it back to life. God, revive it. Bring it back, God. This morning when I come in, a brother asked me, he said, are you all right? I said, no. I am, but I'm not. It's been a heavy week. Nothing, nothing that has happened has gone bad, but being in God's Word, it's been a heavy, heavy week. It's a good heavy. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's a great heavy. It's like the kid that's taken his wagon down to the watermelon patch, and he's gone, and he's picked five or six of the biggest ones down there, and now here he is trying to pull this thing up the road to the house. It's a heavy load, but it's a good load. Trust me, God has been dealing with me on this. He restores my soul if I am to say, God, I want revival. I must first admit that, God, I've allowed sin to come in and kill something. God, I've allowed sin to come in and destroy part of me. God, build it back up. God, revive it. God, heal it. There are some of you in here that have wounds unimaginable and scars that have grown over them and we will never know about them. But as a faithful flock, God's produced fruit from you. There's wool that's been shared and it's been used to clothe others. There's been wool that's been shared and it's been used to bandage other wounds. He restores my soul. Why would he do that? Why would he restore my soul? For his name's sake. Okay. We, we don't really understand the importance of namesakes here in the United States. It's not something that really crosses our mind. It's not something that means a lot to us. Oh, well, you know what? I, I can go down to the... Social Security office, and I can get a name change form, change my name, and I'm, all of a sudden I'm somebody else. We don't understand the importance of the name. But God's doing it for his namesake. Back in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 7, 
thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that's usually all we see. We see part A of the verse. Very rarely do we see B. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who uses the Lord's name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who uses the Lord's name in vain. The language that we use sometimes, you drop the GD bomb, that's, that's not great. But God's his title, it's not his name. When we go and we evangelize, we're taking God's name. When we help a neighbor, we take God's name. Sometimes when we get on TV and we fleece the flock, we try to do it in God's name. That's a vain use. That's a self-centering use. That is a useless use of God's name. Well, I'm doing this for God. Are you doing it for God or are you doing it for yourself? Am I wanting revival because I want people to look at me or am I wanting revival because I want to see God move, I want to see lives changed, I want to see souls won to the Lord, I want to see God's word exalted, I want it to be below as it is above in heaven. I want to see God move. Or you just want revival so that, look at how spiritual I am. I read 12 chapters last night. You know 12 is a very, it's a very biblical number. It's a perfect number. The, the, there were 12 tribes of Israel. There, there were 12 disciples. It's biblical. So I read 12 chapters every night. Come on! We talk about power struggles in churches all across America. I'm sorry. You're sitting here wondering with a 110 outlet. Ooh, I'm, I've got the power. I've got the power. Get past the receptacle. Get out here on the pole where there's a transformer. Get to the transformer. You want power? Go and be transformed. Stop tapping into this little bit on the wall. Get to where he is. Get to where he's doing what he's doing. Be a part of it. Plug in and make yourself available. He restores my soul for his namesake. God be praised. For his name is great and greatly to be praised. He leads us down those paths for his namesake. But see, there's another expectation with that. If he's going to lead in a path of righteousness, sheep has what? As to what? <laughs> He's got to follow. I, I, I've heard a few variations of the Lord's Prayer over the years, and this is probably the funniest one to me. Dear Lord, lead us not into temptation. Just tell us where it is. We'll find it ourselves. Is that not true? God, this is what I'm going to do. You bless it, okay, and we're going to call it your will. No. Mm -mm. I'm sorry, it don't work that way. He's 
going to lead in that path of righteousness for his namesake, but we've got to follow. God, I want to be a righteous man. Okay, let's walk in this path, and I'm not going to carry you. I'm not carrying you to the destination of righteousness. I'm going to let you walk the path so that you get to walk in it, so that you get to experience, so that you get to use it along the way. You need the dirt on your feet in righteousness. You need to get dirty in righteousness. You need to fall down, roll around, and get covered in the path of righteousness. Yes, you're going to stumble, but rub a little righteous dirt on it and let's go. You've got to walk that path. It's like praying for patience. That's the number one no-no in the Baptist church today, is it not? Never pray for patience. Why? Because you sure enough going to get the opportunity to use it. Amen? And it's, and it's not like it's a week later. It's never a week later. It's like five minutes later. Hey, would you get in here? I told you supper's on the table. Oh, I'm talking to God. Come and eat your supper. We can talk here at the table. If you pray for patience, God's not going to give you patience. If we pray for righteousness, God's not going to give us righteousness. What God's going to do is he's going to take us to a point to where we get to exercise patience. We get to exercise righteousness. We get to exercise the love that we ask to have. We get to exercise the mercy that we ask to have. We get to exercise the power of God that we ask to have. God is going to take you down that path to where you get to use it. Are you using it? Will you use it? Do you plan on using it? Or is this just, mm, mm, God, I, I just love you. Praise Jesus. You fit into my hour on Sunday morning. Woo! Praise God. We love him. And then off to what you do. Yay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We're just going to take the first two-thirds of this verse. The valley of the shadow of death. We love mountaintops, don't we? We love when we get up on that mountaintop with God, don't we? We love that spot in our life. I do. I love the moments in my life where I have fought this fight and God has taken me to a mountain point in my life. I love that. That is a sweet time. But I got news for you, Christian. I got news for you, non-Christian. I got news for you, sinner and sinner saved by grace. There's a lot more valley than there is mountaintop. There is so much more valley. And we, we don't think about this, but without valleys, there wouldn't be mountaintops, would there? You've got to have a valley to have a mountain. I mean, we, we could have flatness and then a gully and then flatness again. Y'all call them plains, Mexicans call them plateaus, whatever. You, you've got flat and then you've got a gully. But even still, between high points, there is a low point. You can't have one without the other. You may be walking through a valley today. Praise God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. My shepherd has guided me through this path. We're going from this pasture to that pasture. There's a valley I've got to go through. There's a valley that I have got to go through. The valley is darker than the mountaintops. The valley is usually cooler than the mountaintops. It doesn't
doesn't receive as much light. When you get on the I-40 and you drive out to California, it feeds into the 10, and then the I-10 tops the mountains, tops the Rocky Mountains, and all of a sudden you're looking at the California basin below you. Almost 80% of the produce we eat in America comes from the California basin. It's not a mountaintop. The valley is dark. The valley can be treacherous. But the valley is fertile soil. The valley is where the farmer seeks to be. All the nutrients, all the blood that has been spilt out on the mountains, all the treachery that we've gone through, the, the small victories in climbing, the rain has washed them down to the valleys, and a pool of God has collected in that soil, and God is ready to fertilize. God is ready to work. God is ready to grow something in your life. That is where fruit is produced, in that fertile soil. There's an old, old black and white movie. It's called Sergeant York. It's about a young man in Tennessee who lives a life of raising hell, shooting up, drinking, smoking, womanizing. He gets called by God. He gets saved. And he and this one other guy have been fighting over a piece of what they call bottomland. It's land down in the valley. It's along the Tennessee River. And they, they've... Even after this man is saved, they still kind of go back and forth about it until Sergeant York, he comes and he says, you know what, brother, I'm sorry, I've, I've got to repent of this. And in the end of the movie, he ends up getting the piece of land the state of Tennessee buys it from the gentleman, builds this Sergeant York a house and puts him in it. But it's fertile land. It was something they were fighting over. There's a penitent heart when we're in the valley. There's a heart that seeks when we're in the valley. There's a heart that when we are as low as we can get, finally we can turn up and say, okay, God, enough of my way. What's yours? Grow something in me, God. Let me produce fruit. Let me grow. But there's something else to remember about this valley. The valley of the shadow of death. A sword cuts, amen. A bee stings, but not their shadow. The shadow of a bee is harmless. The shadow of a sword does not serrate flesh. It's just a shadow, for my shepherd is with me. He stands ready to walk me through all of this. Now, for a rough part, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And upon reading this, most of us, we're like that little five-year-old baby brother or sister. I'm the youngest of three boys, so I can attest to this. <clears throat> Mama, he hit me. Spank him. Get him. Get him. It's his fault, not mine. Get him. And a lot of us, we read the staff and the rod that way, that, that God's using it for protection, and to a point, he does. This one is at our house. I engraved it backwards in the paddle so that when I spank their little hineys, I can read it. Foolishness is bound in the hearts of children, but the rod 
of correction will drive it far from them. He that spares the rod spoils the child. God, where is the comfort in punishment? My child, the comfort is in the fact that I love you. Daddy, why do you punish us? Because I love you. I want you to have a great namesake. I want you to be a respectable person. I want you to respect people. But daddy, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. The rod of correction hurts. But another use of the rod, it's a measuring tool. It lets us know where we stand. Do we measure up? God's constantly, come on, let's grow a little bit. Let's get a little bit more. Let's get a little bit more, just like the tick marks on the back of your pantry door or something like that. The rod. The rod in the Hebrew is called Shavet. It literally means a stick for punishing or setting boundaries, measurements. Then the staff we have was called Mishana. It means a walking stick, a stick for protection, but it's also a stick for guidance, the shepherd's crook. He's a shepherd. With one hand, he guides, he directs. With the other hand, there's correction in the valley. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God, your protection is great. Thank you that you love me enough to discipline me, that you have not given up on me when I have failed time and time and time and time again. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Now for this, we've got to go to the New Testament to truly understand the meaning of this. We don't see a lot of this in the Old Testament because there's not a lot of what we would call dinner parties. There's a couple, but not a lot. So we go to the New Testament. And we go to Luke, Luke chapter 5. Jesus sees a publican collecting taxes. His name's Levi. We know him better as who? Matthew. He says, come follow me. What does Matthew slash Levi do? He gets up and he follows. And he has Jesus over to his house for dinner that night. Now see, when they have dinner... And I know a lot of you already know this, but for the few that don't, their houses are right on the street. The windows are there. They lift up the blinds so that everybody passing by can see and smell and hear what's going on. Ooh, that's some great hummus they got in there. Ooh, look at that bread. Where did they get that? They ain't got the money for that. Ooh, ooh. They look in. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and they see Jesus eating with who? Matthew, a publican, a tax collector, the lowest of the low. Samaritans are golden compared to publicans. He's eating with them. Jesus has had a table prepared before him in the presence of his enemies. Chapter 7, he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. Same thing. Windows are open. All the Pharisees are there. There's a huge spread. All the poor people walking by. 
Oh, it smells so good. I wish I had the money for that. Ooh, that hummus is kicking. And they're watching. But all of a sudden, the company has changed, has it not? Before he's with Matthew, he's with friends. He's with a disciple. Now, he's literally eating with the enemy. And what happens? What happens? What are the Pharisees dogging on Jesus about? They're dogging on him. Nah, it's not washing hands. It's washing your feet. You came into my house with dirty feet. Jesus says, do you know you haven't given me water for my feet yet? You have been rude to me. But what else has happened? A young lady of ill repute has spent a year's wages on an alabaster box full of spikenard, a very expensive oil. She comes, she kneels, she breaks, and she cries over the feet of Jesus. He says, you have done me an injustice, but this woman washes my feet with her hair, her glory. She has given me so much. You have given me nothing. It's not the whole that need the physician, but the sick. He has prepared a feast before you in the presence of your enemies. My cup runneth over. Can you imagine the love Jesus felt as this woman dismantles her glory, her hair as we are told, and she scrubs his feet with all the junk that is on them, the dust, the manure, everything else, anything that's been thrown out in the street, her hair, her glory. She has dismantled her glory and she is scrubbing his feet. You've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My joy is full. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. So basically, I expect wherever I go, God's mercy and goodness to be there, right? If, if I'm following, I expect that, right? I do. I expect that. We expect that. But I want us to look at it a little differently today. I want to change our perspective just a little bit. If they're following me, who gets there first? I get there first, right? And then they come. When Jesus went anywhere, his disciples followed him. And we know that there are probably 200 or more disciples between men and women that follow him. We concern ourselves with the 12 most of the time, but we know for a fact he sent out 35 pair to go into all the area and to preach. But there's a lot. Do they impact the world around them? Yes, no, maybe. Yeah, they've got to buy food somewhere, don't they? They've got to get water or wine from somewhere. They've got to find somewhere to stay. They impact the world around them. So are we taking goodness and mercy? Is, goodness, uh, is God's goodness a byproduct of us having been there? Is it a trademark of David having been there? Is God's goodness residing there because David has been there? He has brought God's goodness with him. Is mercy from God a trademark of David having been there? Is it a trademark of David's been there so God has brought mercy to that area? Are we taking 
goodness and mercy. Hey, y'all follow me. We're going over here. Or do hatred and hell follow us? Do anger and damnation follow us? I'm telling you, this one hit me right between the eyes because I'm guilty of all of these. I have taken, there, there are places that I can take God's goodness and mercy and they just flow. It's like turning on a fire hose. But then there are other places that it flows like trying to put out a raging fire with a straw. His goodness and mercy following us. Does it go where we go? Let's take it off of us for a second because our relationship with God is about God, others, and then us. Let's put ourselves on the back burner. Are we taking God's goodness and mercy? Or are we taking damnation and backbitings, gossip and greed? What follows us? Is God's spirit following us? Is his goodness following us? Is his mercy following us? Or are we just in bad company today? You're known by the company you keep. Are you, what, what company are we keeping that they follow us wherever we go? What have we made a disciple in our life that would follow us to these places? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dwells another interesting word. It doesn't mean just to reside or live. It means to live in as a wife or as a husband. I shall live in God's house as his bride. I shall live in God's house as a groom, as one of the children. I'm one of God's children. I dwell in his presence. I live each day in and out of his presence. Are we dwelling in God's house? We say we've got all of these. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm a member of his flock. I'm going to his pasture. I'm, he's leading in paths and I'm following. He's taking me to green pastures and I'm going. He's brought me to still waters and I'm a drinking. But are we living in God's house? Are we living? Or is this a spot that has died too? And like I say, this all deals with me first. It hits me. For every finger that gets pointed, there's three on each hand pointing back. It's been a heavy week, but it's been a great, great week in God's word. In just a moment, we'll sing. I ask you to ask yourself, just as I have to ask myself, does goodness and mercy follow me? Is the Lord is Yahweh the great I am my shepherd have I entered into that covenant relationship with him have I entered into that marriage with him have I joined myself to him and said I am yours or do we still live for self Maybe you're here today and in your heart you're saying, I want revival, I want revival, I want revival. But sometimes like me, there's a dead part you don't want to give up. Because it's too painful, because it's too hurtful, because it's too sensitive. God, they just don't know. Oh, but I do. Let me resurrect this portion of your life. You want revival? Let's bring back the dead that needs to be brought back to life. I pray God works on you. Years ago, 22 years ago, come March, I had a cousin pass away. She was 35. 
She was standing at the gas pump, pumping gas, $2.87 in. She died. A cardiologist from the Mercer Medical Center just happened to be on the other side of the pump. He told my uncle that when he got there that she was dead before she ever hit the ground. Her heart exploded. And we were at the funeral. And she, she lived the alternative lifestyle. Uh, both of her parents had already deceased. And so her brothers and sisters caught up in this as well, said, you know what, we don't know how to do a funeral. Funeral home, you just take care of it. They had a stock preacher. And I praise God for this stock preacher. He told a story, and it has stuck with me to this very day. He said there was a certain rich man in a village, and he decided, I shall have this grand party for everybody. So he invites the whole town. Everybody comes. They're having a great time. The food is the best. The wine is flowing. It is a great time. The music is just all in tune. And he comes out on his balcony overlooking the ballroom and says, I propose a competition. And all the party goers, yes, a competition. Well, among the crowd, there's a world-renowned actor. He says, let the actor come up to the stage. And he looks over the crowd and he sees the old country preacher. He says, and the old country preacher. And the crowd cheers, yes, a competition. He brings him up. And he says, let's have a reciting contest of the 23rd Psalm. Let's let the actor go first. The actor steps up, because this is apparently what you do when you do dramatic monologues. The Lord is my shepherd, and so on and so on. He goes, and when he finishes, bravo, bravo, worthy of every Oscar, Tony, and Emmy that's out there. Gives just a command performance. The old pastor limps up to the podium, pulls his hanky out, wipes his mouth, snickers all over his shoes, maybe one navy blue, one black, who knows. They don't match a suit, whatever. And he begins. <coughs> the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And as he's saying this, he's thinking about thinking back over decades of ministry. And when he finishes, not a word. Not a clap, but down the side of every cheek, tears flow. And the rich man thinking to himself, what made the difference? God says the difference is the actor knows the psalm. The preacher knows the shepherd. Do you know? the shepherd or do you just know the psalm today you want revival I want revival but we got to give over the dead let God bring back to life what needs to be brought back to life know the shepherd today do not walk out that door without knowing the shepherd you can know the psalm but know the shepherd let's pray Father God Lord you are amazing you are mighty and you are powerful 
God, I love you, and I fail each and every moment of each and every day. But, Lord, I know you. You are the shepherd. Father, I give you praise. Father, do what you do. Have your will in your way. We give you all praise and glory. We ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ending on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God, Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's Cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I Standing on the promises of God. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to ask if you would be seated for just for just a moment. This is this is David Rogers, um, and and they've been worshiping with us for uh, for quite some time now. Um, Chris and Mary, and so uh, when we get when we get done, I'm going to ask you to, to come up and, and join us here. We want to uh, welcome you. I just just want to share. Last night um, we were, you know, that, that we were watching a watching a movie, and. Um, Parents use that as an opportunity to talk about faith and salvation. And uh, David said, I'm ready. I'm ready. And uh, prayed and accepted Christ last night. And church, we, we rejoice in that. Um, man, that's, that's awesome. Awesome. And so uh, just, just excited. We're going to talk about what it means to be baptized and try to get that taken care of in the next few weeks. Uh, but church, thank you for uh, celebrating with us this morning. So this is David. This is your brother in Christ. Uh, I want to ask uh, Chris and Mary if you will come up and, and join him. And then when we're done, uh, who's our, our deacon this week? 
Daniel, uh, come on up, Daniel, and, and uh, pray, uh, pray for us as we're dismissed. You guys can come on up here and then come and, and, and greet, come greet David as a, a new member and, and a new brother in, in Christ. All right. Thank you. Daniel. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, Lord, that, uh, that we can dig into it just like we did today. Um, using the vessels that you use, Lord. Lord, we praise you for each and every soul that comes to you and the ones who lead them there. And everything is directed to you, Lord. Lord, bless us as we go through the rest of this week. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.